Hello and welcome to another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Le Mans, um, which means we have an awful lot to talk about. With me today are... Neil Morrison. You can find me on Twitter at NeilMorrison87. And... Jensen Beeler from Asphalt and Rubber and the Two Enthusiasts podcast. You can follow me at Asphalt underscore Rubber or the podcast at two enthusiasts and my name is david Umit. uh from, you can find me on twitter at moto matters well let's get actually what we ought to get straight into is not so much the race at lamar's but all of the everything running up to lamar what happened before and all of the rumors because it seemed like silly season just completely exploded going into lamar we had first of all we had reports from motorcycle news that um Maverick, or that uh, Danny Pedrosa was uh, close to signing with with Yamaha to take the place of Jorge Lorenzo instead of uh, instead of Maverick Vinales, which we were expecting. Then on, I think it was Friday night, the Spanish daily El País, which is you know one of the biggest newspapers in Spain, reported the same thing that the deal was basically done, and it just everything seemed to go completely insane as far as I was concerned. And then as soon as, of course, what happens if Danny Pedrosa is going to Yamaha? Who takes Danny Pedrosa's seat? So it all gets all went a bit crazy. What was what was the atmosphere like? I mean, how, what kind of an impact did that have, Neil? Yeah, I think the the atmosphere was one of confusion, um, especially on Saturday morning after the news uh, broke on Friday night. Um, the news from El Pais that it was pretty much it was a certainty that Pedrosa was going to um, to movie star Yamaha. Um, before it was reported that it was a possibility and that you know it could happen. Um, should a few different things happen, but um, but for it to be reported with with such certainty, I think you know, really uh, caught a lot of people on the back foot. And, um, yeah, from there, really, the day just followed the events of, uh, of, of speculating um, about what's going to happen in 2017. And the events on track sort of took a back seat. Not for the first time this year, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a bit of a shame that we have such a an interesting season on track. Um, and yet, all we're talking about is 2017. We're only five races in. I feel like there's a, uh, an interesting correlation between the off-track action and the on-track action. Like, it seems like if the silly season is getting really ramped up, the on-track action maybe isn't as, as great as it usually is. And then when we see some really good races, the, the people in the paddock seem to stop and take a moment and stop shuffling the cards around and the seats around <laughs> in their teams. Well, the other thing is, I mean, like going back to last year, last year the racing was great, but then there was no silly season to speak of because everyone was already set for 2016. Yeah. So that uh, that quiets it up. And then, uh, to, well, 2016, what we have is a new set of rules. And what always happens in the new set of rules is the factories get it right first and the best riders always shine. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it just seems strange. It, yeah, completely agree. So, I mean, where are we with silly season? I mean, what do we know? And who was uh, who's been saying what? Neil? Um, well, yeah, I think it depends on, on, on who you listen to. Um, Alpines obviously think that uh, Pedroza to, to movie star Yamaha is a, is a done deal. Because because there's history there as well. I mean, uh, basically, before Pedroza came to MotoGP, uh, he was a, t I think he was a Telefonica rider. Well, because Telefonica is the parent company of Movistar. Um, and th he was, the, they brought him up almost, I think, th even through Spanish Championship. Is that correct, you know? <laughs> 
I think so. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were involved with Alberto Puch. Um, yeah. You know, back in that Spanish championship uh, cup that brought through Tony Elias and Juan Alife, Pedrosa and Stoner as well. And, and Pedrosa was their golden boy. He was their. Uh, uh, he was the prodigy that they were bringing for to win uh, to win them a championship. Um, they were. They really tried to get because they wanted to be title sponsor for the Repsol Honda team, but uh, Honda wouldn't drop the sponsorship, and so in a fit of pique, they pulled out of the Moto uh, out of Grand Prix racing altogether and then only came back much much later so to actually see Drosa back with Movistar at Yamaha it makes so much sense in terms of history there's a you know the the circle of history is then completed yeah exactly and I think when Pedroza was coming into the MotoGP class uh, Movistar sponsored Fausto Grassini's team yeah. which at that point had uh, Sete Gibranoi and there was a bit of a tug of war as to where Pedroza was going to go exactly and you know because he was such a bright talent he would want to 250 championships back to back you know Honda were absolutely insistent that he was going right into the, the factory team yeah. and yeah in a kind of hissy fit uh, movie star walked away from the series for quite a while and only came back I think uh, at the start of last year so yeah there's certainly history between between movie star and um, and, and, and Pedroza um, there's all, there was also suggestions through the weekend I think it was motorsport.com where uh, they, they posted an article which said that you know movie star bosses they certainly want a, a Spanish rider to, to be alongside Rossi in 2017 in that Yamaha squad um, but because of the old relationship with Pedroza he was you know gathering favor amongst the the kind of the the, the big the big the big suits and the big bosses so yeah so it, it, it's strange El Pais were reporting that usually that's a, a more than reputable source yeah um, because it, I mean just to emphasize this El Pais is a very reputable newspaper and there are plenty of there are plenty of dodgy sources in the Spanish and Italian media media uh, but El Pais is not one of them yeah it, it- if I could preface it for, for American listeners, this would be like the New York Times reporting things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, same, yeah. The same level of stature for a publication, the same uh, publication of record status. Yeah. So ma- mammoth to hear it from them. I know Nadia Troncioni a little, uh, you know, having worked with her for, uh, I think she's been, uh, she's, I think she's been in the paddock as long as I have. And, At least you know, seven she, years, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So and uh, I've never been able to catch her I've never seen her actually, you know, writing a story just to sell some newspapers. Exactly, yeah. And whenever you, whenever you see her or hear her ask questions in press conferences or debriefs, um, you can tell that she's not a type of sensational journalist that yeah. is there to try and stir the pot or, you know, make something that isn't really there. Um, so yeah, so I think whenever I think, well, I know your reaction was probably the same as mine, David. Whenever we saw that news on Friday night, we took it as as pretty much a done deal. Then yeah. that, that it must have happened. Um, but then it was quite interesting coming into the circuit on Saturday, um, hearing some some interviews on Spanish TV, hearing some interviews on on the live feed. Um, I then spoke to Olivia Supo and Massimo Marigali, and yeah, it certainly um, it seemed to have caught everyone off guard, uh, not just. Um, uh, even even people riding riding Yamaha, even people in Honda, um, Vinales and his manager or his his, his acting manager at the moment. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of confusion. Yeah, exactly, and especially uh, I don't think Maya Marigali helped uh, uh, clarify the situation because his reaction. I mean, I, I remember listening to him on the live feed, and he sounded to be. I mean, he was beat, totally beating around the bush. He was trying, doing his absolute best not to answer the question and 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 actually making things an awful lot worse. I don't, and because you also spoke to him, I believe, right? 
Yeah, I spoke to him very briefly, but he, he just couldn't really say anything. Um, and he comes across as the kind of guy that doesn't want to lie to you. So yeah. rather than lie, he just said, look, guys, I, I really can't answer that at this present time, you know. But there was always, there was a, a kind of, I wouldn't say mischievous, but a wry grin in his face while he was while he was doing the interview, um, you know, which kind of obviously was saying, I know a lot of things that you don't know, and I'm not <laughs> going to tell you about these things. So, <laughs> so it wasn't so conclusive uh, speaking to him. Um, but yes, it, it was it, it was interesting um, because then several other sources in the Spanish media, in the Italian media, um, you know, obviously went and spoke to their sources and spoke to people. I'm guessing within Yamaha, within Vinales's camp, and um, what Vinales' manager or stand-in manager, I think he's actually uh, he's Paco his lawyer. It's yeah, his Paco, lawyer. Paco Sanchez is his sure. lawyer, um, and uh, Vinales is managing himself, which is yeah. at this at this level of your career. Not necessarily the smartest move, but um, sure. Uh, and and well. that's also the similar situation to Pedrosa. He doesn't have a manager at the moment, but his yeah. lawyer is present in negotiations. Um, but then Pedrosa's thirty years old, Maverick's twenty one, and yeah. Pedrosa's been around for so much longer. So yeah, he's done um, a lot of contracts already. You know, to, to to be fair, some some of the work I've seen from some of the the rider managers, I think those riders would have been better off just on their own. You know, oh it, yeah, there, but no, there's, there's, we could have a whole conversation. I think about the. Uh, the management and the leadership within the paddock for for riders and and how it's um, the talent is not commensurate with the level of money that's being played with. No, this I mean it's basically being a rider manager is what people do when they think they they're going to make a load of money off of young riders, and it's simply not that easy. People get terrible advice. Uh, they get terrible choices made for them. Um, uh, they get the wrong deals made for them. Uh, a manager will see a deal which is really, really good for them in the short term because it means they, they're going to get a, you know, an absolute shed load of money, um, uh, but it will completely ruin their career. So, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. You, you can be better off without a manager sometimes, but when it became clear that Vinales' manager was uh, was gone, that Vinales had split with Aki Aya, who, again, is a very competent manager, uh, the, the, you know, the the best managers in the basically there was a line forming at the back of the because this happened at Austin and there was a line forming at the back of the uh, of the Suzuki pit of uh, the, the the best managers in the business or or wanting to go in and talk to Maverick about um, uh, so I hear you uh, you're you don't have a manager all with dollar signs fixed yeah. firmly in their sights yeah. well yeah. That, and that's the thing too like a good manager pays for themselves in in, in the real world you know uh, or at least I should say in 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 sports where that's a more uh, established field, a good yeah. manager brings brings the money with them. Basically, because they're going to bring sponsorship deals, they're going to bring value added in uh, contract negotiations. They're going to bring with them wisdom to help steer you around obstacles that are going to cost you money. Like I still think back to Danny Pedrosa and that stupid boat licensing thing. Like, who was in charge of that deal, or who was in charge of that idea that didn't say, "Hey, Danny, maybe you shouldn't cheat on your captain's test because you know <laughs> every now and then the government cracks down on it." And you're going to look like an idiot in the press when it shows up. You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Motorcycle races are not uh, particularly known for making great personal life choices all of the time. Um, uh, no, no. I mean, so, by by definition, they don't, right? Like, you make, yeah. you decide to race motorcycles for, for a living. Like, that was a horrible idea. Like, fortunately, you probably have talent to back it up. But, like, exactly. on the grand, like, scheme of things where it's like, oh, I'm going to stop going to school around fourth grade and then race motorcycles. Yeah, exactly. The chances of you actually making a lot of money are um, limited. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, think that's uh, the definition of diminishing return. Yeah, exactly. 
So anyway, we interrupted you, Neil. So Paco, because yeah, again, Paco Sanchez, his manager, he was speaking to. I think uh, I, I heard him movie and saw TV. him. You were a movie star, and he spoke to the the live feed, and they spoke to Eurosport. I think he spoke to every possible TV camera within a five hundred mile radius. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he suddenly became the most uh, the most wanted man in the paddock, um, and he was yeah. What he was saying was quite interesting. He was saying that um, you know he was taken aback that such a reputable source as El Pais had had reported this news that he and Maverick were both still firmly in negotiations with Yamaha, uh, that the money side of things had been decided, um, and it was basically um, sporting clauses, as he put it, I think, um, uh, that that was still uh, something that they were discussing. Um, but he was sure that basically um, it, it, was Maver- it was down to Maverick, um, and it depended on, you know, the kind of movements of the market was, was basically being held up by Maverick at the moment, and yeah, kind of went against everything that had been reported the night before. Um, so then, you know, spoke to Supo and at, at that time Supo said that uh, he had he had spoken to Pedroza on Saturday morning and Pedroza's man, uh, lawyer and they had both said that their priorities was with Honda, but then I guess he would say that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, it was it was difficult really to know um, which way, uh, which way it's going. Exactly. I listened to the uh, to the audio of uh, of Danny's uh, press debrief. I think on Saturday, and it was fantastic. It really did. Uh, it really did remind me of Louis Van Gaal, the uh, the uh, now Manchester United football manager, uh, and I think he was also manager in. Um, um, uh, for Barcelona for uh, for a while, uh, but he was absolutely infamous. He's infamous in the Dutch press for basically sitting there and berating journalists and intimidating them into into complete silence. And this was the, the, you could tell the the, the way that uh, the, the things he was saying. I told you, I, I was here on Thursday. Everyone who came here on Thursday, I told them by the position on Thursday, nothing's changed. Now shut up and go away. It was absolutely. It was uh, it was magnificent. It was yeah yeah. He was asked. I think he was asked. You know, have you signed for Yamaha? And he said, I, I talked about this on Thursday and nothing's changed since then. And then he was asked, but have you? And he said, all I can do is raise my voice, but I'll say the same thing. But he said it with such icy clarity. Exactly. And, and, with, and with a look that really said, I'm going to kill you. Exactly. No one dared ask him another question about his future. Um, uh, you know, in, well, for the remainder of the weekend, from what I heard. So uh, yeah. it was interesting. But yeah, it's worth saying that um, I think, you know, in our last show, it was recorded just after the 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 post-race test in Jerez. Um, Vinales had told us after the race in Jerez on Sunday and after the test on Monday that he basically wanted to have a decision made by, by Le Mans. Yeah. Um, and it, it was a surprise on Thursday whenever we spoke to him that he was still deciding. And, you know, he was he was very honest about it. And he kind of said that he had been, he just hadn't been able to come to a decision. He said one day he wakes up and he, or he, one day he goes to bed and he's absolutely sure that uh, he, he has his mind made up and he knows what, what to do. Then he wakes up the next morning and, his judgment is slightly clouded and he has to sit down with a, a blank piece of paper and write the pros and cons of going to each place um, or staying in Suzuki or going to Yamaha. Um, and yeah, and speaking to one or two people within Yamaha, you got the impression that they weren't angry with him. They know he's a young man. He's 21 years old and, you know, this is the biggest decision of his career to date. But, you know, you also got the impression that, you know, they had expected him to have made a decision by this point. And the fact that he hadn't was a little bit like, okay, right, Maverick, you're kind of dragging this out just a little bit, you know. And yeah, so so that also gives rise to the to the, the speculation that someone was told in Alpice that this was happening to speed up negotiations with Maverick or for Maverick to basically make up his mind and hurry up 
Yeah, because because the the impression that you get from Yamaha is Yamaha they're basically because you know look let's face it they're the best bike on the grid um, they are absolutely the best they're a fantastic organisation you can argue about who's got the best organisation but they've they've got a fantastic organisation technical team seconds to none um, uh, basically they are like the it, it is like you know the prettiest girl at school phoning you phoning you up and saying you know do you want to come to the dance tonight and you're going well. Well, I'd like to, but, you know, there's this, you know, I've already agreed to, to go with someone else and, you know, I might actually want to do that. It is basically blowing up your uh, blowing up your chance of ever seeing them uh, seeing them again. I mean, Yamaha are not vindictive. Obviously, if you turn them down uh, this year then uh, and his contract expired at the end of next year, then there's no uh, no doubt that Yamaha would chase them again. But uh, you did get the chance, you did get the idea that, that, that this was what was happening. Yeah, kind of like that. Sorry, I was just taken back by the thought of two girls actually phoning you up and asking you to go dance. <laughs> Never happened for David, I guarantee it. Never happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so I imagine as, as, as we're sitting here on, on Tuesday evening after Le Mans, Maverick is probably sitting at home in Catalonia somewhere uh, trying to trying to basically come to a, a definitive um, a, a definitive decision. But, but as someone said to me, um, you know, what Suzuki has done this year is is so impressive, and it really yeah. is it really is fantastic. And you know, I think no one could begrudge them their first podium. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, on Sunday, that's right. I mean, uh, like Maverick was complaining about a, a lack of rear grip last year, but it was fairly low on his um, on his list of priorities. He was, you know, he was complaining about a lack of rear grip. But he was also complaining about a lack of uh, acceleration, a lack of horsepower, a uh, lack of a seamless gearbox. And they've basically fixed about three or four of his really big problems. And now there's just there is this. I mean, you know, a lack of rear grip is still a huge problem, but it's you know they've fixed all these other problems and this is the one which is left yeah but you know he basically has you know if you break it down here's the chance um at the end of the season you know on, on the sunday night at valencia to go from a bike that can occasionally well can we could probably say regularly challenge for a podium maybe regularly stand on the podium um but it within eight hours he can then jump onto a bike that he knows will be a championship challenger yeah because i mean the basic one of those two bikes is about I would say he's about ninety percent certain to uh, to to win the championship again this year. Yeah, um, we saw well, we saw what the problem with the Honda is, but we'll 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 come to that later on. But um, yeah, I mean it, it, it's obvious there. I mean uh, JB speaking because you're the non MotoGP journalist in here. What would you like to see? What would you like <laughs> to see happen? Do you want to see Maverick on the Yamaha to see what he's made of, or do you want to see him uh, become Kevin Schwantz? Yeah, you know, I can go both ways on that. And I think that's probably the same thing that, that Maverick is struggling with. I think there's there's an opportunity there to do something different, to stick with a manufacturer and, and be the next kind of Kevin Schwantz and, and have those names be synonymous with each other. And then there's the opportunity where you can go to a turnkey operation that, that's going to be uh, world championship, com you know, competitive. Uh, you know. It's tough as a, as a fan and as someone that that kind of knows a little bit about what goes on there, you know. I I kind of like the shuffle. I, I would I would like to see more of a of a churning of the riders to different teams and different uh, uh, outfits and bikes and like and things like that because it, it does bring something to the sport and I think it does create some some newness in in a sport that's been stagnant for a while. So, the, but but does the shuffle mean you want to see you want to see Maverick on the Yamaha, or does the shuffle mean you want to see Danny on the Yamaha? I mean, honestly, I think I'd rather see Danny on the Yamaha, just because that's going to mean a shakeup at Honda as well. And then now you've seen like the big three really kind of shake up their rider list, and and I don't think 
a rider change to Suzuki for for a fan perspective is really going to change much for the spectacle. But yeah, you you change riders at Ducati, Honda, Yamaha, then you know we can all sit here and, and debate for hours about who's going to win the 2017 championship because it it could be you know. Uh, any any combination of possibilities at that point. And yeah, that's, about and that's very about, exciting. Yeah, what about you, Neil? Yeah, I think um, I'm kind of torn because I, I think Vinales is a is probably at the level now where he is ready to challenge for race wins. Um, and I think if he was on the Yamaha next year, he would possibly be, even be a championship contender, which I think would be fantastic to see. But at the same time, I think Pedroza... Um, I think, you know, the last, we really haven't seen the best of Danny Pedroza this year. The, the last quarter of, of 2015 was a timely reminder of his talents. I think this year he is, he's got to the stage in his career where he just isn't prepared to take the same risks with a bike that's, you know, not very good as Mark Marquez is. And, you know, we're seeing that affected in the results. You know, he's been, you know, he's been nowhere near the sharp end for, for the majority of the season. Um, and, but I do think that, you know, looking back at, the end of 2015 he still could be a race winner um maybe even a championship contender so i you know part of me would love to see pedroza on the yamaha and also if he went then we could you know have this almost you know near identical discussion three weeks down the line about who's going to take a season repsol honda <laughs> that helps sell paper right <laughs> so, exactly so here's my question to the both of you as as sort of uh experts in this field what are the chances of danny pedroza winning a championship on honda uh, uh zero like approaching uh, I, zero, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. as long as as long as Mark is on the uh, uh, is on the Honda, very very small, and especially the Honda that, that well, you saw the shape that the Honda was in. The, there were there were five Hondas started the race, four of them crashed, mm. right? Uh, uh, and the other one finished twenty five seconds. There you go. That's where the uh, that's that, that's where the Honda is. So the Honda is, and uh, like I said before, I have had a Honda. Um, I've had senior Honda people tell me that the bike is shit, which is not good. So yeah, the the, the chances of them actually winning on it are, are I think, extremely limited. Uh, so so I mean, yeah, you, I I really like to see, and of all the years that um the, the Danny Barossa actually rode the rode the bike, I think there's only been a couple where it's actually been any good. The bike was good in two thousand six. In his rookie year, he actually helped it come good through 2009, 2010. 2011, the bike was great, but then, you know, there was a, a certain Mr. Casey Stoner who was on the bike. 2012, Danny came very close to actually winning the title on a good bike. 2013, Honda decide what they really need is a lot more horsepower. And since then, the, 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 the bike has just gone downhill. So, I mean, I, I would really love to see Danny on a Yamaha just because I think I think he could push anyone in the world to a champion, to, you know, all the way, all the, all the way to, all the way to Valencia for a, for a championship uh, on the right bike. Um, and the Honda is, is not that bike. At the moment, there's only one person who can win on that bike and, and that's Mark Marquez. Yeah, one person that can win and one person that can even get near the podium. Yeah, I mean, for, for, for Danny to actually do what he does on that, uh, hunk of junk is a it, it's a miracle I mean it, it, that, that to me says a lot about his uh, about his actual ability I mean even ca what Cal Crutchlow does before he crashes is actually really really it is quite impressive because he is competitive on some on a bike which is simply not competitive look at where Jack Miller is who is a, 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 a you know a talented rider look at Tito Rabat who is a world champion um 
they're they're absolutely nowhere because they can't get the bike to go because the bike's rubbish. I think that I think that that speaks exactly to to the point I was trying to make, where you look at okay, not only what the bike is doing, but also the team dynamic within Repsol Honda between Marquez and Pedrosa, and it's just I feel like if he goes to Yamaha, that opens up a lot more. Yeah, um, there's a lot more opportunity there for him to to shine again. Maybe he can have another renaissance like like Rossi is having right now, and and that makes it exciting for me again. Like I I'm a, I mean. I enjoy watching Danny ride well. I enjoy r- watching more than three riders have a shot at winning a race. Yeah, you know. So yeah. when you add to that volume of talent, when you start catering to their specific riding needs and and, and getting them on bikes that that favor the way they ride them, you know, that only speaks better for the sport. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, going back to so say Danny does go to does go to Yamaha. Where does that leave? Who takes his place? Was there anything? Because obviously this El Pais story must have kicked off a lot of, um, uh, and, and the MCN story, they must have kicked off a lot of speculation in the paddock about who would have, who would have taken his place. What did of you course. hear, Neil? Um, just, you know, everybody and everybody <laughs> and his dog. Um, you know, I, I think, you know... I got offered a ride even. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the money yeah. was shit, but, you know, yeah. I'm sure, thinking yeah. about yeah. it. Yeah, you'd have to up. drop the Mountain Dew sponsorship, though, yeah, gents. <laughs> well, that's no the thing. I bring that. I bring sponsorships with me, yeah. <laughs> so that's what those meetings with LCR are all about. Yeah, in, that's uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the American Diabetes Association. <laughs> I'm going to be yeah. like the John McGinnis of MotoGP, just, just yeah. my fat ass out there schooling all these young kids. Yeah, maybe, maybe it could be McGinnis, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I've heard various different stories. I've heard, um, uh, you know, Crutchlow's name was mentioned, obviously, um, in an MCN story. Uh, but just judging by Cal's form so far this year, you can't imagine that warranting a factory ride. Um, one of the two Andreas from uh, from Ducati that, that is more than likely to be, you know, to, to lose their seat. Um, well, it's definitely going to lose their seat, in fact. Um, you know, Ian only. Davizioso, both their names were mentioned. Paul Espargaro was uh, was another one, and then I guess Alex Rins. Um, I would I would be very surprised if it came from someone that wasn't uh, those four or five riders that I've just mentioned. Um, yeah. And from those from that list, you know, based on current form, I know at the start of the year we we were kind of talking about Rins, um, how impressive he had been in his first season, but really he needed to have a kind of Marquez esque second season you know to fully warrant stepping up with a, a full factory behind them um but from what i've seen in the last few races of, of, of alex Rins, in fact the, the last four races you know i think he's he's stepping up he, he's showing that he probably is deserving of a full factory ride oh yeah i mean well we'll, we'll talk about the motor two race uh later but i mean it was a, a it was an amazing performance he put on um uh and certainly looked a lot more like the kind of talent to, to be able to do that um of the Andreas, I think, uh, Dovic, well, I mean, uh, it's less likely to be Dovicioso just because Dovicioso has already been at Honda and I'm not sure that Honda have um, forgiven him for holding on to his contract and making him run a three-rider team in uh, uh, when, when Casey Stoner joined. Um, then there's uh, well, I know Paulus Bargaro has been really looking for uh, looking for a Honda ride because he's convinced that he could, he could ride the bike, but I think he, he that would be in for a nasty shock. And uh, sort of Cal Crutchlow gets left almost as the as the least worst option, as the uh, as, as the best of uh, as the best of the rest because you know they're not going to get Lorenzo, they're not going to get Rossi. They're, uh, they're, they're, there's no one to match Marquez. It's um, it, it's actually quite a tough it's a tough situation for Honda. Yeah, there's no absolute standout candidate no. um, at the moment, which which you know is is quite problematic, I guess. Um, unless you know 
Rins wins the next two races and, and, and makes it look like the Moto2 title is a shoo-in. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. But then, uh, then of course, we get the prospect of Rins alongside... Uh, sure, uh, sure. alongside Marquez and uh, on the other side of the garage to uh, Emilio Alzamora who he split with as a manager over the, the, the way that the Moto3 uh, championship was handled which would make things if you thought the atmosphere was frosty in the Yamaha garage this year just wait until you see Rins and Marquez <laughs> in the, uh, sharing a garage Yeah, what, what odds are you giving on that actually happening David? Uh, at the, well at the moment it's all a coin flip it's basically it is basically a roll of the dice isn't there like a um, uh, some uh, war game, uh, 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 role model game, or something, where you have lots of uh, like, where all the trolls and wizards and all are the rest you of them. Talking about have, Dungeons have, and Dragons. That's the one. They've got a twenty-seven wow. sided dice or, or or whatever. I think it's 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 a, it's a roll of one of those dices of die. No, one of those dice. That's right. <laughs> one of those which with about a, a billion different faces. So uh, yeah, I'm honestly. Uh, it it for a for, uh, well for journalists who like to score lots of uh, points with uh, speculation, then it's great because it just means you can basically write a story a day linking Rider X to the to the Repsol Honda seat. You said so um, such and such, you know, today it'll be Alex Rins, tomorrow it'll be Andrea Nianoni. That's that's basically that's a whole week week's worth of stories you've got there, right there, without having without actually having to do any work. So uh, yeah, ideal. You know, you joke about it, but like. There is a certain reality of that's how things are going to play out for for the media side of things. Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I I already I could already predict uh, the headlines on certain websites for for the next two weeks. For sure, for sure. It's a there's an element of that that is it's like wag the dog, right? Yeah. You know how can you perpetuate this this story that we or this narrative that we want out in the space for us? And that's and I think and I see that on my side and in, in you know in the less of the racing venues and more with the the OEMs and things like that. When we see spy photos of of new motorcycles that seem to come from email addresses or IP addresses that are right next to the factory of that photo, or um, well, you I, see... actually, I remember the, uh, the the I think the spy photos, the first spy photos of the Suzuki's MotoGP bike. This would have been about two years before they came back, before Randy Depunier got on it. Mm-hmm. And the spy photos were, I mean, they'd clearly been made with professional cameras. I think the, the, some of the EXIF data was still in there. And so it was obviously, you know, they'd been made with DX1 professionally. Uh, they were very, very sharp. There was nothing in the way. Um, they'd been made with a bloody great big lens. And so this wasn't your classic spy photo. This was, you know, sort of stand there and let me take a picture of it. Yeah, someone was trackside when the thing went by. And then you take it through Photoshop and post-processing to make it look like a cell phone photo. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, and then there's a side of it too, where you see you see the the lines between journalism and media get blurred, yeah. and you know outlets that were supposed to be um, records of authority, or you, know, or you know that used to have strong journalistic standards are becoming more like outsourced marketing departments for OEM. So there's there's something larger in the space going on here, and I think I think watching it through the MotoGP lens, at least for me. Is very interesting and 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 maybe worrying. Uh, but yeah, but I mean, it's basically because it it becomes uh, well. I mean, you and I both know this. Uh, it's difficult to actually make a living in in publishing um, and try to remain uh, objective. It, it it requires it requires a certain amount of sacrifice. It requires giving up on a on a whole bunch of things. It's much easier just to. Uh, you know, regurgitate press releases and 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 play a play nice. Uh, it's nowhere near as much fun though. 
Um, uh, I think it's much more interesting, you know, trying to be a good journalist, trying to be, trying to get things, trying to get things right. Mm-hmm. Um, sweet. Uh, right. Well, uh, we've drifted off topic a little bit, but uh, still an interesting uh, conversation. I think it's time for a break, and we shall be back in a moment. Hey guys, this is Neil from the show, and this is a quick reminder to follow us on Facebook. That's facebook.com, Paddock Pass Podcast. Thanks very much. Well, welcome back. Time to turn our attention towards the race it was a it was a weird one it has to be said there was a a lot of crashing going on um they again we had a well we had a tire situation i think for the first time it seemed that the the you know the 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 michelin got the tires right what was the response to the uh, to the especially the new tire which uh, which michelin had bought neil um yes yeah, so there was Pretty much universally uh, positive feedback um, on the the rear tires that uh, Michelin brought. They brought um, two different compounds. Um, they had one one of those was a slightly softer construction to what the riders were using in Hareth, where there was excessive rear spinning. Um, you probably remember that Lorenzo was and a host of others were complaining that the the tire was spinning in a straight line. Um, and then another one was a slightly uh, a slightly softer construction of that, um, and I think everyone bar Yoni Hernandez went with the, the slightly softer construction in the race, and it seemed to be generally quite positive. Um, Lorenzo complained of just a tiny little bit of spinning in a straight line, um, but I think everyone's you know was 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 positive. Um, you know the guys that really struggled in the race like Yanoni, uh, Scott Redding, you know they they weren't anywhere near in as near as much trouble as they were two weeks ago um but then you know it's, it's kind of been like you know in argentina there was a problem a lot of people had an issue with the front tire almost the same in austin uh you know it wasn't necessarily that the tires were were bad it was just that people were having issues getting you know getting the grips with them then in Jerez it was the rear tire but again in france it seemed to be the front tire that that people were having issues with because there were so many front end faults yeah uh, because as i understand it they uh they bought three front tires uh, but they've settled on a single construction before the uh, the riders were having to choose between two different constructions one construction had more feedback but uh, less support and so it meant uh, they talked about basically under braking the front the, the front wheel was ro- locking under braking but once we actually pitched it into the into the corner then it was fine uh, the 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 construction which they've actually chosen is gives a little bit more support but has a little bit less feedback and the you know the the, the track surface someone said 14 it's 14 years old the uh, the track surface at Le Mans and uh, Last year there were eight riders who crashed during the race, and this year again there were something like there were seven, I think. Uh, eight crashers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but Marquez rejoined. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of the riders. It was, you know, I guess it was it was similar to Le Mans last year. Uh, there were higher temperatures during the race. Uh, then obviously in the morning, and that you know that seemed to kind of disrupt a couple of people um dis- disrupt their setup. Uh, also, the you heard pretty much every rider. Um, Speaking of the, the the Dunlop rubber that had been laid down by the Moto Two race, yeah, that had just gone before, and how that really was was you know changing the conditions quite a lot, um, and you know in the end it didn't seem to affect the the, the Yamaha guys, but the Hondas you could see and the Ducatis as well, um, you know it had, it had quite an influence on the result in the end. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Hondas are, are in trouble anyway because if they, you know, because they can't, they don't have any acceleration. They have to try and make it all up on the brakes uh, going into going into the corners, and that means taking more risks than normal, and and that means ending up flat on your face, which is what a lot of them seem to happen. And also, it's I think uh, turn seven, Musée. There is a because half of the people basically there were four crashes at that corner, as well as the fantastic piece of synchronized crashing mm. with uh, uh, Marquez and Dovizioso. But they were, uh, the, you know, there were two two other people to crash. I think Jack Miller, Miller, Miller yeah, and, and someone else crashed there as well. So it's it, it's just a how much of it is track and how much of it is tire and, and how, or how much is, is is a little bit of both. Um, you know, I think it's probably a little bit of both, to be honest. Um, you know, it's probably the things that that we had discussed after the the Austin race. Um, just you know, in the race. People are pushing that little extra bit harder because there's a guy at the front who's not being affected with these issues so much. They're trying to keep, you know, trying to hold on to him and therefore doing things maybe that they wouldn't have had to, they wouldn't have been forced to have done in, in free practice. Um, it also seems that just the the Michelin tires, I heard from one rider kind of speaking off the record that, that the Bridgestone front was quite good at absorbing, um, at absorbing bumps. Um, you know the tire was able to, to to flex a little bit whenever it encountered a bump, and well, it has been quite notable actually how many riders have complained this year after they've fallen that they've hit a, they've hit a bump that um, you know when they were at the absolute limit of you know of adhesion um, that that basically disrupted and, and and threw them on the floor. I think um, I, th- I think it was who was it? There was a, there was a, one or two riders that were speaking of um, you know of touching a little bump. I think Miller was one of those at turn seven. Um, and it seems to be that the the Michelin tire, especially in racing conditions, is just a little tiny bit more rigid, which which may kind of explain explain that. Yeah, I, I wonder how much that is to do also with the fact that we are uh, that that the, they're now racing seventeen inch tires rather than sixteen and a half inch tires, uh, which means that the carcass is 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 sort of slightly it. it slightly lower slightly smaller so perhaps there is a little bit less flex in there but it's i mean i don't know enough about the i mean tires are tires are voodoo at the best of times uh, and i certainly don't know enough about this to actually say something sensible but uh, i think that's a it's a mission for us to try and find out once we get to once we get to uh, uh, Magello or another racetrack i think something we need to look into but you know if i can just but, interject for a second uh you know, my, my, my good friend Jason Pridmore would tell you right now that um, he's never seen a tire crash by itself. <laughs> you know, it's just just in all of his years of racing and teaching, he's just never seen it happen. And and, and every time I listen to the, the conversation about the tires, like I, I keep going back to what he said and I can hear it in the back of my head. Um, because I always find it very interesting when the, when the riders start complaining like, oh, well, the bridge or the Michelin doesn't absorb the, the bumps as well or the grip is here and there. And it's like, well, everyone's out there on the same tires. Yeah, and everyone's dealing with the same track conditions, and you know, not everyone crashed. And maybe if everyone crashed, you could say that there was something wrong with the tires, but not everyone did. So, I always look at the debate of who is adapting to the change in tires the best, because how much of racing really comes down to the rubber that's meeting the road, because that's such a huge component to 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 motorcycles that I think enthusiasts and rainy race fans don't quite understand and for for when i hear the the racers talk about it i almost feel like it's like they don't want to admit the fact that the the, the reason they crashed is because they didn't adapt they're used to a bridgestone way and now it's a michelin way and they just haven't made that transition yet but that's not the reason they want to give or that's not a reason they can give so let's just blame the tires themselves or let's blame the track conditions or whatever it's like well was it bumpy out there okay well then you didn't ride correctly over the bumps it's not that the bump made you crash it's just yeah, I, you didn't ride over the bump 
in a way that would that would make it so you didn't crash. Uh, yeah, well, I think when riders complain about anything, basically, when they, and especially about tires, what, what they're not what they're saying what they're not saying is the tires are rubbish. What they're saying is the tires behaved slightly differently to what I was expecting, and as a consequence, I was not able to extract maximum performance from them. Uh, but that takes a lot longer than to say bloody Michelin's or bloody Bridgestones, because again. Every time, and I mean, the, 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 uh, coming back to the day that uh, Bridgestone announced they were withdrawing from the uh, withdrawing from MotoGP, they were pulling out. Um, it was great that day because right up until there, the races before they'd been oh the the rear's rubbish and it's soft and all the rest of it, and we can only race the soft and uh, I haven't got enough feedback from the front and all the rest of it. And then uh, literally the day after it was announced, all the riders were saying, "Yeah, Bridgestone have done a fantastic job and they're great tires and all the rest of it." So it's uh, they only really appreciate. What they've what they've got, you know. They, they're all, they're, they're, you only appreciate what you've got once it's gone. I think there's a uh, isn't there a uh, isn't there an eagle song or something with uh, with that title? But uh. <laughs> no, I think I think you're right. I think there's a certain uh, writers have a certain amount of myopics when it comes to their their racecraft and what's going on on the track because so I mean like look at it like literally their life is defined by what's directly in front of them. It's yeah. it's it's corner to corner living and it's it's the same thing with with things off the track as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, it's kind of I think what we've seen, you know, what we saw in in Austin, the precision that is needed with these Michelin tires really needs to be a hundred percent for a hundred percent of the race. Um, you know, one or two occasions we've heard riders speaking of going in. I think Dovizioso said that he entered turn seven the, on the lap that he crashed with two two percent more two, two uh, degrees two sorry, degrees two more degrees. angle. Two degrees more angle than, um, than than what he had before, and that was him down the road. We also heard Crutchlow say that his crash in Texas was the same. You know, he just had that extra little bit of uh, of lean angle, and that was enough to that was enough to throw him down the road. So yeah, obviously people are still learning exactly how to how to come to terms with this. Um, but yeah, I don't think it was a it was a problem with the tires as such. Yeah, exactly, and to an extent, it also well, uh, yeah, ruined the race as it were because uh, I mean, everyone we were all afraid that uh, Lorenzo was going to disappear off into the distance, and he got a again just a fantastic start, uh, held everyone off uh, into the first chicane. Um, but it looked like the the the, the Ducatis were really going to keep them honest uh, for for quite a long time. Yeah, yeah, Ianone exactly, or Ianone in particular looked uh, looked very good. Um, he could have potentially been, you know, one of the guys that could challenge Lorenzo um, in qualifying, but he crashed midway through the qualifying session, and then uh, he was fastest, I think, in morning warm up, and was looking very strong in the race. Started reading Lorenzo in, uh, but I don't think anyone was touching was, was touching Lorenzo, even if everyone had stayed up. Uh, and in a, you know. I think he was just so good and so far ahead of the rest yesterday. Even if, if Rossi was starting on the front row and you know got a similarly good start, I think um, you know Lorenzo's consistency over that race just would have told um, you know as it did in the end. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, 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 there was a really sensational looking battle shaping up for second with uh, with Rossi, Davizioso, and Marquez. Yeah. And then obviously both Davizioso and Marquez went down, and suddenly we had uh, we had quite a big a big amount of space between each of the the front three or four riders. Yeah, basically that 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 killed the race. It meant uh, it, it meant it was over, um, uh, and it also meant that we saw Maverick Vinales on the uh, on the podium for the first time. But, but I mean, is this a real? Can we, do we count this as a real as a real podium? Um, I mean, I think it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, three riders crashed in front of him. 
Yeah, sure. Maybe not a, a real a real podium as such. Um, you know, a, an excellent ride, yes, absolutely, but perhaps not a, a real podium. You know, um, but I don't think anyone after what had happened in Argentina, I don't think you could really. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hold that against them. Um, but yeah, but still quite a turnaround from Pinales because on Saturday he was. Uh, he was pretty down in his debrief. He was pretty angry. Um, he said that he was really pissed off. Um, and again, it was that similar thing that he'd been complaining of for the past, well, year and a half, I guess, almost. Yeah. Uh, that on corner entry, whenever the temperature goes up, he has no rear grip as he tries to enter the turn. And, you know, he made the point again that uh, I've been saying this for more than a year now and, you know, nothing's changed. It's still there. It's still there. And, you know, that seemed to be an indication uh, that, hey, Suzuki, you know, get your finger out. Um, but he managed to go back to the drawing board that night, I think, with his uh, with his team and, and, you know, kind of limited the the time that he was losing with yeah. that on Sunday. Yeah, because I believe that they, they will have some new parts to test after Barcelona, at the Barcelona test, which obviously they hope will actually fix it. But, you know, by then it's going to be too late for Maverick to actually make a decision, of course. Sure, sure. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yes, exactly. And of course, he was also, well, He for a while he was catching uh, Rossi. He actually looked like he, he could at least get much closer, uh, get much closer to him. And it, uh, also, he was being caught by Danny Pedrosa. Again, Pedrosa finished fourth. Um, uh, Pedrosa suffered the same problem as, uh, well, he suffered the same problem as Valentino Rossi at the start, and that he got caught up in traffic and uh, uh, lost a lot of time. But it, it, Pedrosa was just not where, not anywhere near as good cutting through traffic uh, on the Honda as uh, as Valentino was on the on the Yamaha. Sure, and, and Pedrosa was saying afterwards that um, that he just, you know, the start of the race is really where he struggles a lot, not just with the start. <coughs> We know the Honda itself isn't a great bike off the line. Yeah. Uh, you know when you compare it to the Yamaha or to the Ducati, um, but also I think Danny seems to have some issues with the full uh, with the full tank. Um, he wasn't able to get up to speed until about lap seven or eight or nine, um, and that's just I don't know whether that's because you know he's he's a bit lighter and it means it, it takes a little bit more time to generate you know the proper working temperature in the tires or or what it is exactly but no but it must be it must be a a property of the uh, of the bike itself because i mean in 2011 12 13 uh, especially 11 and 12 uh, it, i mean you could you could basically put money on who was going to be the first rider into the into into turn 1 and it was Danny Pedrosa he used to get off the line really really quickly uh, but they've done something to the bike i remember asking him about it maybe a couple of years ago um, at Bruno saying well you know you used to be the first into the corner what have you done and he was saying uh, we're you know oh yeah we've we've changed strategy and the, and the strategy's not working but that was that's a completely meaningless sentence um well, not to him, it's not. Well, <laughs> it makes perfect sense to him. It's just we're missing no, no, no. the information. No, no, says, well, the, the sense it makes to him is um, go away, I'm not going to tell you, which is you know, exactly what he's, he's he, he, part of his job is also to give us as little information as possible. And he absolutely gave us as little information as possible. There is clearly something that they have done to the uh, Honda, which has stopped it from being able to get off the line as well. And it's actually making it a very ill handling beast through the first uh, through the first few corners. Sure, sure, absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, just to back up what you said, uh, what you said earlier, he was losing three, four hundred metres on the exit of uh, of the final right-hand corner onto the main straight. And, you know, he just said uh, the, the race was just like uh, elastic, I think is the, the adjective he yeah. used, you know, like getting up on the brakes, but then losing on corner exit. And that was just the story of every rider on a, on a Honda uh, throughout the weekend. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the the result is actually really good for the championship because of uh, because Mark Marquez managed to crash out uh, almost surprisingly because uh, Marquez has been incredibly mature over the first certainly over the first four races, always you know settling for points, uh, not pushing too hard. But here it just it just seemed he got suckered into trying to uh, into trying too hard uh, ended up on the floor but then to his credit he got back on and uh, you know rode home to, to to score three points despite being well completely at the back of the uh, well dead last basically sure and you you listened to Marcus uh, speaking after the race on Sunday and you pretty much could have taken his debris from 2015 and just, you know <laughs> played it back and he could have sat with his mouth shut because what he was saying was just the exact same things we're losing so much in acceleration and we're having to try and make it up in the brakes and you know he was basically just saying that yeah sure it's fine to ride like this for one two three four five laps yeah. but to ride like this over a full race on the on the absolute limit um it's uh, it's it's impossible and it's also you know it's all well and good um what he said you know, after the race in Jerez, that okay, you know, we have to, we have to pick up podiums here and there where we where we can. But when you've got you know both Rossi and, and Lorenzo in this kind of form, and yeah. you know Yamaha looking this good, and you can see your championship lead being eroded, and then possibly you know losing further ground, you know, there's only so many times that that you can sit there and take third place without thinking I need to react, you know, I yeah. need to try and yeah. stop this. Um. So yeah. So it, it I, you know. Le Mans highlighted HRC's fundamental flaws, or the you know the fundamental flaws with that bike last year. It did the same again this year, and um, you know I think it also showed just how brilliantly Marquez has been riding the bike up until now. Yeah, absolutely, because he's he's obviously been disguising the the, the deep problems which the bike still has. I get the distinct impression that is that the bike is a little better than it was last year, but they've sort of swapped one set of problems for a very similar set of problems. They've changed the bike; it'll it it, it turns a little better, um, but it is but it it still won't accelerate. And their biggest problem is that uh, is that it won't accelerate, and they're and they're having to try to make it all up on the bikes. So um, uh, there was talk there was talk that uh, HRC would like to see the engine freeze, the engine development freeze broken, but so that they can try and catch up. But then, you know, they've had this problem for three years. So, you know, suddenly bitching about it, saying we want to we want to be able to develop the uh, uh, develop the engine to, to make it to improve this problem. It might actually be better if they'd have thought about this two years ago when Valencia, when Nakamoto promised at Valencia they were going to make their bike easier to ride. Yeah, it's not as if the riders haven't been telling them. Yeah, yeah. For, for the past two years. Yeah, exactly. Um, the yeah, words, the yeah. words, Casey Stoner and Ducati come to mind. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's very true. Also, um, you know, Marquez was saying that he's, you know, he basically has to run that the, the harder front tire, um, just because he is doing so much in the front end yeah. of that bike that, the, you know, uh, Kretzel said this earlier in the season as well that they're just completely overheating the medium compound tire and that. You know, it, it, they can't use that over race distance. Um, and I think Marquez said that that also compromises a bit of, you know, turning ability when he has yeah. to use that harder front. So that's another problem with the bike, you know, that, okay, it's fantastic on the brakes, um, but it does have that issue with, with overheating the tyre. Yeah, exactly, because it's it's not short of horsepower. It's got lots, yeah, it's got lots and lots of horsepower. It's just that the rear spins and spins and spins. And if you, yeah. you can have as much horsepower as you like, because you look at the speed charts and it's up there with the with the best of them. Sure. And I think another thing that probably would have, you know, engineers 
throughout HRC's workshop, you know, hanging their heads and, and crying, you know, in utter shame. But Marquez was asked to list, you know, the, the sort of rank the bikes on their current abilities of horsepower. And he said, well, there's Yamaha first, and then there's Ducati after that. And then there's probably even Suzuki after yeah. that. And then there's us, you know, and that was quite telling as well, just how, you know, the, the extent that they're struggling. I think the Honda engineers are just glad he didn't, he didn't rank Aprilia ahead of them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but that's that that's that's a brand new bike, so that would be uh, that would be too much of accumulation. It, again, it makes you wonder if Mark Marcus ever did decide to to leave Honda, then they would be in in a whole world of hurt, and they'd actually have to fix the bike. But uh, that's that's not going to happen, uh, right? I just quickly want to talk about Paul Espargaro because uh, Espargaro had he seemed to have a really strong weekend, finished fifth. But when I spoke to him on Sunday, he was gutted he was uh, he was just distraught yeah absolutely yeah he and it was strange because on, on saturday he was he was you know speaking that he had a positive qualifying his fourth uh, his fourth place i think was the best qualifying yeah. of the year um and we asked him what his aims were for the race and he said yeah i think you know for the first third we can be up there we can challenge the fastest guys in the on the grid for the first third of the race and then after that it's about consolidating our position and trying to finish his top satellite uh that's pretty much what he did he, he fought with rossi in the first lap um you know he scrapped with alish his brother um a couple of the other factory guys um but then i think towards the end it just you know, Pedroza came past him and he had been faster than Pedroza all weekend. Yeah. And just the fact that he was unable to, to, to stay with him, I think really rankled him, you know, really made him quite upset. And, you know, Paul was just, you know, very, very unhappy, you know. Um, and, you know, and I think there's, you can see the difference there between Paul a guy that's won a world championship in the past and Bradley Smith, because what Paul did and what Paul in fact has done so far this season is, is, more or less what Bradley was doing so yep. brilliantly last year, consistently finishing inside or just outside the top six. Um, but last year, Bradley was accepting that this was the limit of the bike. You know, as a satellite rider, you can't really finish higher than that. You know, you just have to do something utterly exceptional to, to do that. Paul still gets extremely angered and, and frustrated that he isn't, you know, in the victory fight yep. or, the, or the, you know, the podium fight. And I guess that's, that's a guy that, you know that in the past, you know, raced and and fought against Mark Marquez for a world championship. Yeah, he still believes that he can actually that he can beat Mark Marquez if he was on the same equipment. Yeah, whether he can is a different kettle of fish, but that's uh, that's it. I think perhaps yeah. the, his problem may may perhaps be down to tire management uh, in the sense that you know they don't have they just don't have the data guys to actually go through and set the electronics up as subtly as the factory Yamaha guys to actually get the best out of their tires, but. Absolutely, but yeah. Who knows? He has he has one he has one uh, electronics guy in his in his corner. I think Bradley has one as well this year. Yeah. And you know Rossi and Vinales, uh, sorry Rossi and Lorenzo have a, a whole team of them. You know, set out uh, set out the back of the garage, being able to to program uh, the bike exactly for the needs. You know, is what Lorenzo said on on Saturday. He said we arrived here and the base setup of our of the M1 was so good that we then used Saturday to basically go through each corner and just perfect the bike. Yeah. You know, for the needs of every single corner. You know and you, you obviously need a vast amount of resources, uh, you know, and know-how uh, to be able to to be able to do that. Yeah, but and you need well, yeah, you need a vast amount of resources just to be able to arrive at the situation where where you have that luxury, sure. where where sure. you are, you can just focus on it because it means to have the the luxury of a base setup, which is what a lot of people are still for, still chasing. I think. Right. Well, we'll take another break and then we'll come back for a few more words for. Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. Just want to want to uh, mention very briefly uh, Petrucci, uh, who made his first racing appearance of 2016. Uh, he had missed the first four races with uh, with injury. Uh, he rebroke a hand. Uh, he 
firstly broke his hand in, in pre-season testing at Phillip Island. He then came back prematurely at Qatar, rebroke the hand uh, in free practice, and then had to, you know, watch from the sidelines for four four races, uh, which he said was the one of the toughest moments of his career, especially with all the silly season stuff going on. Yeah. You know, he, him sitting there knowing that no one is mentioning his name at all. Um, but, you know, Patricia came back in. He wasn't even sure if he was going to complete the weekend. He said that, you know, if he uh, if the hand really hurt after any of the sessions, he wouldn't risk it. He would, you know, just basically um, retire from the from the race weekend. Uh, but I thought he was I thought he was very, very impressive. He was in and around the top 10 for most of free practice. Yeah. Uh, he was consistently faster than Scott Redding. Yeah. And in the race, you know, okay, he finished, uh, I think, more than 30 seconds off the race winner, but he was just outside the top six. Um, and I thought, you know, it's, it's a timely reminder of his talents. Um, you know, Petrucci really is, you know, for a guy that used to be a backmarker in the CRT class, yeah. you know, I think he's, he's really showing that he is quite a talent force yeah. to be reckoned with. Absolutely, absolutely. He he he's always been a writer that's impressed me a lot, and he definitely impressed me again this weekend with with overcoming how much he he's had to. And it, it is a shame that he doesn't get as much credit and respect in the paddock because I think he deserves it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I saw some of the pictures posted of his hand, and it was well, you know, again, swollen. It's a tennis like, ball. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which was is it just twelve a, screws? The uh, 20, 25. 25, okay, great. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, which is, is, is just great. And also it tells you to a certain extent the lengths that these guys will go to just to be on the grid. Um, it's not healthy. It's uh, it's not healthy. It's insane. But, um, uh, well, yeah. well, think about it. Think about it farther than that. Like 10 years from now, like that hand's just going to be arthritis. Yeah. No, that, yeah you know, yeah. It's just like, you know, you think about what they're going through now, but like this is going to be a lifetime of consequence now for, yeah. for Daniello with his, with his hand. Like that's just going to be, he might as well start riding with his other hand. He's going to have to relearn everything. Yeah, yeah, I, I know that Cal Crutcher has already got some arthritis in his, um, uh, I think, in his shoulder, and uh, Nicky Hayden has got a lot of arthritis in his hand. It was one of the reasons he got he had the the, the three the three bones taken away, uh, taken out of his wrist, uh, because there was so much arthritis in the in the existing ones. Uh, yeah, I mean, you don't grow you. As a motorcycle racer, you know that you're going to have a very painful old age. Um, seeing my parents, sort of my own parents who are in their sort of 70s, uh, uh, getting on for 80, you know what arthritis is it's like. It hurts. It's not good. Yeah, and I think after Petrucci's crash was it in 2014 at Areth, he broke his wrist, yeah. and then and then they made a you know an early early comeback from that. Um, yeah, that's that's something that he's going to have to live with for the rest of his life. He said, you yeah. know, on the bike it's not so bad, but doing normal things, yeah. uh, he doesn't have the normal movement in that wrist at all. Yeah. So, yeah, so that hand, the, the recovering, the, the hand, sorry, the hand issue from which he's recovering uh, is probably going to tell, you know, several years down the line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was an absolutely heroic performance, no doubt about that. Uh, right, well, now we will take a break and we will, uh, when we come back, we'll talk about Moto2 and Moto3, which were also fairly interesting. Hi, this is David Emmett. You're listening to the Paddock Pass podcast. Remember to follow us at on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. So, welcome back, and we move on to the well, 
what people call the support classes, which is uh, slightly denigrating, but uh, because they're they're usually some fantastic racing. We had a an imperious performance in Moto Two from the rider we weren't expecting, and an imperious performance in Moto Three, although it didn't look like it. So starting with Moto Two, Alex Rins. Everyone was expecting Thomas Luter to clean up, especially after his pole and uh, uh, and, and practice, but uh, it didn't work out that way. Yeah. Thomas Luddy and Le Mans is, is basically a match made in heaven. I think you can you can guarantee that there's going to be two or three occasions every year where Thomas Luddy looks like an absolute world beater. Yeah. Uh, and looks like he's he's destined to, you know, do something in the championship. But uh, but those those kind of occasions are quite fleeting. Um and yeah, as you said, he was he was on it basically all 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 weekend. Uh took a fantastic pole position and then looked set up for the race. But actually if you if you go through and look through the, the, the chronological analysis from uh, qualifying, Rins also looked like he had a pace that was slightly just a little slower than than Ludi. Um although very strong as well. Um so yeah I was kind of expecting a, a bit of a punch up between those two. But in the end Rins was just uh, was just great. Um very similar to uh, to Texas, um, just totally unflustered, maintained his pace uh, right up until the end, and yeah, it was it was a very controlled and assured display. Yeah, I mean because it looked like at the uh, at the very end in the last what was it four or five laps or something, he'd been saving something, uh, you know, because he, he just completely rode away from Corsi and 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 left him. Well, I wouldn't say quite say left him for better, for dead, but I think he opened what was it two, three, four seconds or something by by the end in just a few laps. So it's clear that he, that he had something to spare. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it was a, it was a fantastic day for him because we saw in Hareth he was having a really difficult weekend, but he still managed to salvage a podium. Yeah. Um, his other championship challengers had a you know had a positively awful day. Uh, both Jonas Folger and Johan Zarco fell, and Sam Lowe's you know got a top six finish. But that was sixth place was basically the the height of what he could do. Um, so, uh, yeah, because uh, I mean, what were, uh, Sam Lowe's just didn't seem to have any sort of front end feel at all all weekend. Did, did you get to talk to to, to to Sam this weekend? I didn't actually. He was uh, he was leaving the he was leaving the track just straight after the the Moto Two race. Uh, he wanted to get out of France as soon as possible because <laughs> he had been. I think he'd been testing in Barcelona, and then he went straight to Indonesia between the Spanish and French Grand Prix. So he was keen to get back to get back to England as, as quickly as possible. So that meant uh, didn't get to speak to him. But yeah, he was he was just struggling with front grip throughout, um, especially I think in sectors. I think it was sector three. He was having really really serious issues um you saw in the first laps of the race he was just unable to make any sort of impression yeah. on the lower kind of end of the top 10 and once he got through that i think it was guys like marcel schroeder you know good riders but not riders that are going to be fighting for race wins once he got past a couple of those guys he was able to more or less match the pace of the podium men but we've seen a moto two before that if you you know if you let someone open up a three or four second gap uh in front of you something serious is going to have to happen if you want to reel them in yeah, exactly. It was a tough race for Jonas Folger as well. I mean, we had Jonas Folger signing a new contract. He's going to be MotoGP next year. Um, uh, he's going to be uh, taking, basically taking Bradley Smith's place in the Tech 3 teams, which I think is a fantastic signing. And I know that um, uh, Hervé Poncherel has had his eye on uh, on Jonas Folger for a long time because I remember talking to him two or three years ago about uh, about Folger and he was he was very, very positive about Folger. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was just a, it was a, a bit of a disaster for him to, uh, to to crash, not the way that you want to celebrate a, a signing a MoGP contract. And then what what happened to Johan Zarco is just um, 
I mean, it, it's just a mystery. I don't. I really don't understand what's going on with Zarco at all. He just seems to be having a terrible time. Yeah, a mystery to I think a mystery to us and a mystery to him as well. He just wasn't really able to to, to put his finger on it to explain it. Um, yeah, a terrible weekend for Zarco and, and for Folger as well. Um, in the past, if there was one criticism you would make of him, it is that consistency, um, and that's that's the second non-score of the year. He you know threw away. A probable race win in Her- uh, sorry in Qatar. Yeah. Uh, but crashed not early on there, and then he crashed, I think, on the second lap here. Yeah. Um, and it was just a case of, of wanting to do too much too soon. Uh, you know, he paid the ultimate consequence for it. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, there's there, there, there's no doubting his uh, his talent and his speed. He has that. It's just that uh, it, it seems to be a question of focus, a question of concentration, and and you know trying to get it all together, put it all together. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, Sam Lowe's came through to take sixth, but it does mean that he uh, lost the leading, the uh, lost the lead in the championship. He's now, I think, five points behind uh, behind Alex Rings. Alex Rings has taken over uh, at the head of the championship. Um, is this a defining moment in the in the championship? Do you think, or is it just? Uh, do you think it's it's going to be a little bit back and forth? I I think it's going to be back and forth. Um... But I do think Rins is kind of clicking into some some kind of serious form. Yeah. Um, you know, quite ominous form, really, um, because, you know, from looking at his first year in, in the Moto2 class, it was deeply impressive how quick he made the, the switchover and the adaption. Um, he maybe wasn't quite at the level we expected um, in the first few races, but then partly that was because, you know, Zarco had a storming race in Argentina and Lewis yeah. was fantastic in Jerez. Um, but, you know, I think what Rins has done quite well so far this year is he's shown on his bad days that he can still finish fourth and third. You know, he had a bad day in Argentina, but he was fourth. Uh, he had a terrible weekend in Jerez, but, you know, he was on the podium still. Um, so I think, you know, I, I kind of had him done as, as my preseason favourite and from what I've seen so far, um, you know, Lowe's is going to, I think, push him quite hard, but I, I think Rins is going to be very hard to beat. So he's a little bit like Valentino Rossi last year, where he's, uh, it was his bad days which actually define him. The, the, the fact that his bad days were always uh, uh, much, much better than any, everyone else's bad days, and that's, what, that's what's kept him, put him into this, uh, into this situation. Sure. Um, sure. Uh, of course, Rins has a little bit easy. He doesn't quite face the same level of competition. It, it really does look like, it look like it's going to come down to Sam Lowe's. Um, I mean, maybe Folger comes back, but you know, they're, they're, by crashing out, you're losing so many. You're giving away so many points to to, to major rivals that it that it becomes you know Folger, Zarco. They're a long, long way behind now. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, and I think Ludi's now moved in somewhere in the, inside the top five, top four in the championship. But again, from from history, you could just you can't really bet on Tom Ludi uh, putting together a full championship challenge. So, yeah, I would say it's it's still between. I don't know the way Zarko's been going. You would have to say maybe even between the front two, the top yeah, two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moto two. I, I think I was. Um, I was incredibly impressed by Brad Binder again in Moto Two, or sorry, not Moto Two, Moto Three. That's right. All these numbers very confusing. So yeah, very impressed. Uh, very impressed in Moto Three. Uh, the, the way that I mean, it was a, it was a fantastic race again. It was really really tense. It was really really close. Um, you look at the gap, top three clever, covered by less than four tenths of a second. Um, they were really really close fight between four riders all the way to uh, to basically the final the the final corner. Um, but in the end, the way that, that Brad Binder actually controlled the race in the final lap was just absolutely outstanding absolutely superb 
very impressive yeah very very impressive indeed um and you know it just it kind of shows you you know what that first win can do to you sometimes you yeah know, it, can, it can give you just this level of uh calmness uh, an ability to deal with pressure that maybe you you didn't have in the past you know um and i think you know binder was just uh was very very impressive uh it was very rare to see him uh, you know it kind of reminded me actually of um of of Miguel Oliveira in the second half of 2015 yeah. in that he was never lower than second place and he was just always sitting there and you thought like he's really just you know absorbing everything and watching it um and he was he's so much confidence in the front end of that bike at the moment um you know I think what you could see that from the television pictures you know he was just able to break so deep and so late um and he said after the race that uh, he had been he admitted he held his hands up that he was rubbish through the first sector of the track you know he just couldn't get his head around it couldn't get couldn't get the, the right lines and he felt he was losing out time throughout that and he said whenever he emerged out of the first sector in the final lap he just said i, I knew i'd won it you know yeah. it's quite you know no one you've got a kind of a, a brawler like uh, romano Fanetti, you know close behind you to, to kind of have that level of assurance uh i think showed just the just the level of confidence that, that brad is riding with at the moment yeah exactly i mean to to actually hold off both uh, uh both fanati and navarro through that uh, through that lap the way that he held them off that 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 was what impressed me most of all, um, again, Jorge Navarro has a fantastic race, another really, really strong race. But w- w- again, you know, he misses out. You know, he loses. He loses out to to another rider, and he, he doesn't get his first win despite uh, d- despite being challenging all race. Sure, exactly, exactly. But I, th- I think it was I think it was still impressive from Navarro because we we know that that Honda. You know, if we're kind of talking about it fundamentally, it's a, it's a very it's a bike that really sort of flowing circuits, you know. Yeah. Um, whereas the KTM was more of a point and squirt machine, and um, you know, for Navarro and his you know his teammate rookie Aaron Cannon, uh, who was who was sensational all weekend. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it was quite impressive that both of those guys were were there. Um, and I still think you know Navarro is one of those guys that you know should he win the next two or three races, will be uh, will be a, a proper force in the championship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, speaking of Aaron Canet, I mean, I went through and read your uh, your piece in MCN Sport about the about the rookies uh, about the rookies this year. Uh, interesting little piece. Um, but all of the rookies seem to have a really, really strong, uh, quite a strong race. We had uh, or, or a strong weekend because I think Juan Mir was uh, was pretty good in uh, certainly during practice and qualifying. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, well, Canet Canet challenged all the way to uh, all the way to the race or all the way to the finish and uh, Nicola Bolega again although he lost uh, that he actually got stuck in the second group he really uh, he dominated that group he took charge of that group and he ended up finishing finishing fifth so yeah uh, clearly did, I mean there's a really really rich crop of uh, uh, of talent in in Moto3 right now Absolutely, yeah, and Bulliga again I think showed um that he's more than just you know some mad yeah crazy fast kid rider um you know i think he showed that obviously with what he did in harass it was a yeah. real th- thinking man's pass he made it to the final corner but what he did through the weekend i think he had a real bruise and crash at the end of qualifying yeah yeah it was uh, a, it was a massive crash side. yeah yeah it looked re- it looks absolutely awful i think he was riding with painkillers and he's still uh, to hold on and come through and still take uh, was it fifth that's uh, yeah. just very very impressive Exactly, yeah, and he was locked in a, you know, it was kind of that thing again where he was locked in a four-rider dice, and he just sat at the back of that for most of the race, and then towards the end he made this move forward, and, you know, yeah, ended up ended up beating, uh, I think it was Mignot uh, and Danelli and, and someone else in there. Um, so, yeah, yeah, very, very impressive stuff from him. Yeah, he's he basically, he's not riding like a 16-year-old. No, no, exactly. 
Um, so yeah, special, special things. I think yeah, special things uh, should be expected of this kid. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, yeah. Also, also worth pointing out that uh, the Binder was having a mysterious issue with his bike throughout free practice and qualifying. I think he said it, it cut out randomly uh, three times over the weekend. They had no explanation for what happened. It happened in morning warm-up, and because they weren't able to get to the bottom of what was going on with uh, with the bike, the mechanics just decided to completely rebuild the bike before the race. Um, so in that kind of two-hour window between warm-up and then the Moto, G, uh, Moto 3 race, uh, you know, his mechanics <laughs> were working frantically to put his bike back together. And uh, yeah, so all the more impressive considering uh, considering that. I, th- I think they did it after motor after the after FP, FP1 as well because they had a, a massive problem in FP1. I think he only did six or seven laps during uh, during FP1. Uh, you know, he was nowhere on the timesheets, obviously. So yeah. they stripped the bike down to the bare frame, is what I understand, and then put it all back together again in the hope of uh, in the hope of locating it. Uh, um, so yeah, I mean, again, it, it it reminds me a little bit of Mark Marquez um, at Estoril in two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. Yeah, that's right. Where it's just that sort of calmness of mind when there's all this craziness going on that you you can just put that behind you, get on the bike, get on and ride it, and not think about what's just what's just happened. The fact that someone has just you know rushed to screw everything together again, and the hope that it's not going to um, suddenly come loose and throw you off into the scenery. Yeah, absolutely. And that's his, uh, uh, well, according to Brad, that's his absolute worst track in the calendar. Right. Le Mans. He hates it. Um, so, uh, <coughs> Romano and, and Jorge, that's, uh, that's going to make you feel even better. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean, w- w- what was your impression of, of Romano's performance? I mean, uh, he seems to be getting a little bit better, but still, he he's still being he's being outclassed by both Navarro and Brad Binder. It can't be uh, it can't be settling. Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's it's a funny one for Natty. Um, yeah, because he was he was so fantastic at the Mon last year. Didn't he? he won the race? I think. Um, yeah. It was his only win in two thousand and fifteen, and he won it quite brilliantly. So, you know, with his kind of late breaking style, um, you would have thought that if there was one track that he was going to excel at, it would be it would be here. Um, he's just uh, he's just a bit of a mystery, isn't he? He's yeah. Quite. You know, he's a, he's an enigma, and we know his talent. Um, but uh, you know, I think he's. I still think he's going to be a, a championship challenger this year. Um, I think you, you could probably push Brad quite hard. Him and I think him, Brad and Jorge now have quite a quite a big gap over fourth place in the championship. Yeah. And you know I can rightly see you know the three of them uh, making this quite an entertaining championship as we as we move forward into the rest of the European year. Um, but I think for Fnati, if he can just continue getting on the podium, you know that that'll be such a big step for him. You know rather than you know winning one race and then finishing tenth the next. You know if he can just consistently maintain some podium form. That'll be a big, uh, a big improvement for him. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I had a uh, uh, last week. I phoned Hervé Poncherel and had a long conversation with him, and uh, we were talking about uh, where talent comes from and all the rest of it. And he was talking about Moto Two, but he did say that the, 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 at the moment the talent pool, pool was a little bit thin in Moto Two, and he was looking at Moto Three, not to actually bring someone up from Moto3, but just saying, you know, that he can't wait for all of these young riders to come up from Moto3 because he's, he's clearly such uh, such an incredibly talented, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the talent there is very, very deep. Mm, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Right, well, I think that's, uh, that's about your lot for today. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thanks, David. Um, yes, well, thank you 
for listening. Um, uh, thank you all to everyone for rating us on iTunes because uh, I think uh, I believe we're catching you, uh, Jensen. You guys are making a good go of it. You know, I'm in, I'm impressed that the uh, Paddock Pass podcast listeners are are answering the call to action. You're you're still behind. You're still losers, to use a Trumpism. <laughs> but I do want to give some shout outs to people because they were they were gracious enough to to leave some comments, and I'm going to butcher these names, by the way, so get excited. Graluk RCV. Oh, yes. Mittenbittens86, Tobias Yoda, Wiseblood NYC, and Fox one thank you all for leaving uh, ratings on iTunes and leaving some comments and some feedback. Uh, I know I appreciate it, and even more so, I think David and Neil and the rest of the guys appreciate it as well. So uh, thanks you for listening. Thanks you for rating the show. Thank you for uh, giving money to Neil's GoFundMe account so he can get you know a razor and stop looking like a homeless man. <laughs> uh, we, we appreciate it on all these dimensions. Yes. Right. Well, thank you all for listening. And um, uh, until next time. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. It was. Um, it had a, an impact of, of confusion. Wait, can we stop that, for a second? Yeah. Neil, are you holding the microphone? Yeah, I'm afraid I am. I didn't have enough space to pack to pack the um, to pack the stand, so I'm trying to keep it very still. Huh? <laughs> You're gonna kill me. You're gonna just kill me. No, because it's just the levels come in and out so so much, and like I, I could even hear it on the audio. Like you already you already hit the limiter. Um, All right. I'm a, so maybe turn the recording level down a little bit from wherever okay, it's at. Right. Maybe get it down to like 80 or 70. I don't know what you normally record at. Yeah, it's uh, 80 at the moment. So I can bring it down to 70. Okay. And if you could, oh, man, you're fine. So mic levels, mic level 70. Yeah, and just try and keep it at a constant distance if you can. When you get you that right. little like mouth thing that they use for the TV guys, that yeah, keeps sure. it at the 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 she thing. What are those uh, Silence of the Lambs masks? Yeah, sure. That would work sure. too. That, in fact, I'm surprised Neil doesn't have one of those already. I know exactly. <laughs> it's only when I'm at the, the racetrack. Yeah, they, they put yeah. That you want to keep it. Yeah. You want to keep it clean. Sure. Yeah. When I'm yeah. at home alone, it's all right. Well, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I think David was asking you about the atmosphere. Right. So uh, yeah, the, atmos the atmosphere at uh, uh, yes, exactly the atmosphere. At